Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're reading from Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 29. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say the people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one who outwardly nor is circumcision merely outwardly and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Thanks, Fiona. Hi, everyone. My name's Thomas Ford, and I have the privilege of bringing, uh, of preaching from the Word tonight. Um, tonight, we're going to learn and be challenged by um, about on the topic of pride, and uh, tonight's sermon is titled. Pride blasphemes God. So before we do that, let's just pray. Father in heaven, we know that you are so much mightier and holier than us. So much so that it's only by your astounding grace that we can be in a relationship with you. There's nothing that we can do to impress you because you are God and we are just humans. And yet, we can at times lose sight of who you truly are and think ourselves too highly. So Lord, please teach us tonight the results of pride and remind us of your indescribable love and power so that our pride might melt away. Quiet our hearts that we may focus on your word and soften our hearts that we might be willing to learn in humility and with a healthy understanding of you and your gift of grace. Challenge us, Lord, that we might be more obedient to you and glorifying to your gospel. Amen. So, before we start, um, I just want to give us a clear understanding of what pride is. I'll define pride. Well, actually, the Oxford Dictionary will define it for us. It says, Pride is an excessively high opinion of one's own importance or the satisfaction from one's own achievements. So in essence, pride focuses on us and our achievements. It can be good. There are good sides 
to our pride, but there are also bad sides. Pride in our children's achievements or our friends' achievements, um, pride, pride in God, in our endeavors, all these sorts of things. They're, they're not necessarily bad things, but there is a tainted side of pride. Pride in maybe our own holiness or righteousness or our own attractive appearance. Maybe our prestigious new job or even the position in the church that now sits me above all the others. Well, these are all examples of the bad side of pride. And as humans, pride isn't just a certain personality trait that some of us have. Pride actually underlies our very sinful nature. And that's where this passage comes in. The recipient of this letter from Paul is the early church in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. And some believers there had a pride issue. The, this particular passage attacks more, or well, addresses more, the, specifically to the Christians in Rome who were Jews beforehand, who were converts from Judaism to, Christ, to Christianity. Now, there were also Gentiles among the church. And what the Bible means when it says Gentiles is just anybody who's generally, anyone who's not a Jew. And so when it's talking about Gentiles in this passage, most of the time it's talking about um, people who are Christians but who weren't Jews before, who were non-Jews before and are now Christians. Um, and these Gentile Christians made up about 70% of the church, even though this passage seems that he's talking to mostly Jews. The Gentiles made up 70% and the Jews only 30%. But it was the Jews among the church that had the pride issue and to who Paul is writing to rebuke. And they, they intentionally, because of the Jews' background, they made the Gentiles feel inferior because they didn't have their holy, prestigious background. And, and in retaliation to that, there was racism from the Gentiles towards the Jews, and there was unrest within the church. So this is the crowd that Paul is writing to. So the first point from the word tonight is, number one, pride deludes us to God's grace. And it's from the first section, verse 17 to 20. Pride deludes us to God's grace. Paul opens up this text by um, speaking straight to the Jews and catching their attention for a heavy message that's coming their way. You see, just prior to this in chapter 1 and the rest of 2, Paul is um, talking about and explaining how God is completely justified in condemning all of mankind because all of mankind is sinful by nature. And, um, and because of us, without, yeah, and because all of us without sin uh, are not worthy of God's, of God's blessings of eternal life. And Paul writes first, he writes about non-Christians, non-Jews, the mankind, the world. It's wicked and, it, and there's sin. And the Gentiles, you can sort of imagine, are sitting there, and the Jews as well, are sitting there listening to this condemnation and saying, yeah, Paul, bang on, I totally agree, mankind, ugh right? Whereas, uh, and, then, and then Paul goes on to say, but you, you don't judge them, because Gentiles, ju ju to the Gentiles, Christian is saying, but don't judge them, because before you were Christian, you were doing the exact same thing. And even though you judge them, you're doing the same things in your hearts and in your minds, and often in your everyday lives. So don't, don't be judgmental. And at that point, you can sort of imagine the Jews sitting there going, yeah, laid on them, the Gentiles, lol, you know, lol at them. But God, not God, Paul, Paul then directs his attention to the, to the Jews. So he's addressed mankind, and he's addressed the Gentiles for their judgment on mankind, but then he talks to the Jews. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, 
And all the Jews snapped to attention, wondering what Paul could possibly have to say against them. Well, here's, here's what he does. In the text, Paul opens, by, opens to the Jews by, saying, by identifying them by the privileges that they had as being recipients of God's covenant with Abraham. He was identifying them by their privileges. So, like, the Jews had been given certain things by God that distinguished them as Jews. It's sort of, as you, you know, if you read through 17 to 20, it's, um, it could be, I could use the example of if, if I was starting a letter to businessmen, I could say, now you, if you call yourself a businessman with your fancy suits and your leather briefcase, with your spiffy ties and your high stress levels and your office jobs, what Paul is doing is identifying them by the things that set them apart, that are, um, that are exclusive to them, their privileges. Our renowned pastor Kent Hughes describes how Paul outlines these six main aspects in the first, um, two, verse, first two verses by saying there's six main aspects of where the Jews got their sense of spiritual privilege from. Um, following it, yeah, follow along with me through 17 to 20. So it starts off now if you call yourself a Jew. First point, the first aspect of where they got their pride, they were called Jews. Now, the translation is literally praise to Jehovah. Some, some of the Jews were so proud of this title that they would use that as a last name, like Thomas Ford Jew. It, it's a privilege to be called that, praise to Jehovah. And the second point was that they possessed God's law, the Torah being, and, and all of the other laws that God gave to Moses. They, as a people, as the Israelites, possessed that, and that gave them a sense of privilege. The third thing, is that they bragged about God. Not particularly bragging about how great God is, like what we're told to do, but rather they were bragging that they were his favorites, that they were set apart. That is what they would brag in. Um, the fourth part is that they knew the parts of God's will that he had revealed to them. They knew from God's old covenant scriptures and the Ten Commandments and all of those sorts of things, the Jews knew God's revealed will. They had it memorized, all that sort of thing. Um, the fifth part is that they discerned what is superior. They had the ability to make superior moral judgments and discernments, and so that gave them a sense of privilege. And the last and sixth thing is that they were instructed by the law. In times of, of, um, of uncertainty, they had the light to guide them and give them a blueprint of what they should be striving for. Now, these things, truly, these, the six parts of that, they truly are amazing privileges. To be God, called God's people, to be taught by Him, and to be in, in His select people. They're amazing gifts. But remembering the title of this first point is that pride deludes us to God's grace. See, the Jews' problem wasn't the privileges as such. It's how they saw them. The sense of privilege that they had had a deluding effect on the Jews, and it caused them to be delusioned. Prideful human nature turns grace to a deserved reimbursement. The Jews saw these gracious gifts from God, from God and as titles and blessings by their right. God owed them to him, to them. God owed them his law, and God owed them to be called his people. That was the general mindset. Um, the Jews had, as we defined earlier, pride, an excessively high opinion of one's own importance. Pride deluded the Jews to God's grace. 
And that sense of diluted privilege brought even more pride. It was caused by pride and it birthed more pride, which made the Jews then believe that because of these amazing, amazing privileges that which were theirs, that they, they were equipped in and of themselves to do what 19 and 20 describe, be teachers, instructors, lights and guides. The pride that turned a gift into a, that turned a gift into a right made the Jews feel superior over the foolish, unlearned Gentiles who didn't have their background. And I guess it's easy to hear all that and read that and disapprove of how proud the Jews were. And, but the same words that Paul says to the Jews in this passage are for us today, just like the same human nature of pride that was deluding them can all too often delude us today. For example, think about just a few of the privileges we have as Christians. It's like the Jews, we are called Christians. The name, the title of Jesus is in that, that title, but we have Christians. Jesus' title is in our name. If that's not enough, we have the Bible, God's word. God has given his words, his commandments, the history of his people to us. That's a huge privilege. If that's still not enough, we have prayer. We are not we don't deserve to be able to talk to God. He allows us to come to him and to talk to him. We have the amazing gift of the indwelling spirit. We have a calling and a meaning for our lives, which can otherwise cause a lot of lostness in life. And last but definitely not least, we have salvation. We have the promise of eternity in the presence of God. But I guess sometimes we forget these amazing gifts. How often do we forget that, that they truly are privileges? Here's some notes, notes to jot down if you're taking notes. First of all, as an application, beware that pride does not sneak in and let you think, let us think that we did anything to deserve these privileges. Ephesians tells us that we are saved by grace so that no one can boast. The second point is, beware that pride does not let you take these privileges for granted. What we have been given are amazing privileges. As the apostles tell us, embrace and devote yourselves to them, to God's word, the bread of life, to prayer, to being led by the Spirit. Devote yourselves to those amazing privileges rather than taking them for granted. Third thing. Beware that pride does not let you feel superior over unbelievers. Just like earlier in Romans, Roman, uh, Paul is telling the, the Gentiles, don't be prideful that, that you're no longer in, in that way of life. Don't judge them for that. Without God, without being a Christian, you're recording that exact same thing. Don't, make, don't let pride make you feel superior to unbelievers. Fourth point, do not... Beware that pride does not make you teach or lead or train others out of an arrogant, superior mindset. We shouldn't have in our mindset that I want to teach these people because they need the gospel of Tom. They need some of my relationship with God input in their life. That's an arrogant, superior mindset. And we as believers are adopted into God's family. We are privileged, yes, but without the grace of God, we are all the same wretched human nature. So there's nothing that we can do to boast. Don't let your pride delude you to God's grace. I'm sorry.
<laughs> the Jews' pride diluted their mindset, but even further than that, it also diluted the way that they lived their lifestyle. So the second point tonight is pride pollutes our testimony. Pride deludes us, it also pollutes our testimony. So this is taken from verse 21 to 24. These verses begin Paul's cross-examination of the Jews. He's just identified them and, and said that this is who I'm talking to. Here are those privileges which you take for granted. And, and now he starts the cross-examination of them. And he begins it in verse 21. He says, But if you teach others, do not you teach yourselves? Now, just as we've been talking about, the, the pride has caused the Jews' understanding of the law to be low. But even when they were teaching truth, even when they weren't teaching the wrong thing, but they were teaching truth, they were doing it hypoc hypocritically. They taught it right, but they were doing the opposite thing. In, verse, in these four verses here, we see that the Jews themselves disobeyed the very same law that they were professing. That hypocrisy would be up there with, say, a policeman or a state judge professing and enforcing the law, and then just moments later going and blatantly breaking it or going and breaking it in secret, thinking that they are above the law. The Jews' pride in possessing the law also gave them some sense, of, um, some sense that they didn't have to live by it as long as it appeared that they did. Well, how do we know that they weren't living by the law? Well, Paul, Paul goes into specifically what they were doing. Um, and, you know, how do we know that this is what they were doing? Well, Paul tells us in verse 21 and 22, he makes it clear and applicable to them, so that he wasn't being super general. He wanted to make it clear and applicable to them. And so he brings into question four of the Ten Commandments that they were breaking, four of the first Ten Commandments. He says, if you teach that, uh, if you, if you, <laughs> where is it? If you preach against stealing, do you steal? Stealing was the Eighth Commandment of the Ten second one is, if you are saying that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And that's the seventh commandment. It's getting further and further up the list until it gets to the last one that he gives is the, really the first and second commandments, which is, if you abhor idols, do you rob temples? And it's the sense of idolatry. It's understood by most um, com biblical commentators and historians that the, the, when Paul t talks about uh, stealing, they were... They were stealing by accepting bribes, trading unfairly, using unfair trade, uh, scales so that they got more for their buck. Um, they were even stealing from the church and the synagogue, stealing the money. So if, if that's not clear enough as to how they were stealing, then, you know, don't know what will be. Adultery was the seventh commandment which they were, which they were breaking. And the way that is thought that they were doing that was they would divorce their, their current wives so that they could go after a... How did I put it? I don't want to say it wrong. They were going after a more attractive or beneficial wife. That they were divorcing a wife for, for another one. And that was seen... That was what they were being told was, that's adult, adultery. And even as Jesus says in Matthew, they were committing adultery simply by thinking lustful thoughts. Um, and then into idolatry, the first and second commandments. They... Even though the Jews had developed a hate for idol worship after being under the Romans and then before that the Babylonians and all of the different people that they were captive to, they really really developed a hate for, for idolatry because the Roman Caesars would sometimes call themselves gods. There was so much idolatry in the other cap kingdoms that held them captives. 
So there wasn't much worshipping of false idols in, in, in Rome to the Jews who he's writing to. But what's believed that they were doing was being a disobedient, disobedient in, that, in that area by plundering pagan temples and stealing from those temples to make a profit out of them, which they had been specifically commanded not to do. So that's some background. That's the history for us. So Paul says those things. He cross-examines them in those, those areas of their lives. And then to wrap up his cross-examination, he says, You who boast in the law, do you, dishonor, do you dishonor God by breaking it? Their pride was in possessing the law, but then hypocritically breaking it. Now, what's the result of that? What comes from hypocritical, hypocritical lifestyles? Well, I guess we could all say, people don't like us if we do that. You know, if I, if I tell... If I tell people that one thing is right, but then I do the other thing, people won't like me. And that's, you know, as far as it goes. People won't want to be my friend if I'm being hypocritical. But Paul says that it goes so much further. When Paul tells the Jews in verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They weren't just causing themselves to be, blas- to be talked against or people to not like them. They were causing the name of God that they prove- professed to be blasphemed. A superiority complex is bad enough, but to follow it up with hypocritical actions and doing things that you proudly profess is wrong, that causes blasphemy. Pride was causing them, the Jews, to give a polluted testimony to the unbelievers. And the unfortunate thing is that we've probably all too often heard non-Christians around us or non-Christians that we've been passing by talk down Christianity and the church and God because, of, because they knew a Christian who ended up to be a hypocrite, who, who, was to show, who was shown to be an absolute hypocrite. And the saddest thing is when people reject God and deny Jesus based on that testimony. Instead of people denying or accepting God for who he is and love or hate his testimony, they deny God based on who we are, based on our testimony. I guess maybe some of us are living that way right now. Privately indulging things and in indulging in things that we would command or advise people shouldn't get into. Because we have an excessively high opinion of our own importance, as the definition of pride says. And so we believe that we are somewhat above the law. In secret, the law doesn't fully apply to me. There's some parts of my life that God doesn't really apply to. He didn't quite think through my whole life when he made the law. Well, maybe it's in secret, but maybe it's a blatant way that we're living our lives. Living in a way that gives a weak or tainted testimony to non-believers. That if we were to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, they would say, what? You're a Christian? But what about this and this and this and all these other things that I've seen in you? Or maybe they know that we're a Christian and every time they do something, we do something. They, they, they have the right to say, but aren't you a Christian? Why are you doing that? I, th- I thought you go to church on Sundays. Ugh. See, that gives people a reason to blaspheme the name and spirit of God. And in a way, we become those people. We have the danger of being those people that Jesus talked about in Matthew 15, verse 8, when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God isn't impressed by our knowledge or hypocrisy, and neither is the world. One practical piece of advice that I want to share personally on this topic is 
is that if we come across a non-believer who tells us about how hypocritical Christians are or how proud Christians are, our first reaction should be to express an apology and to say sorry. For just as an example, whenever I'm in a conversation, and it's happened a, a few times, whenever I'm in a conversation with a homosexual person and they bring up about how judgmental and horrible the church is towards them or towards people like them, the first thing I say is, I am so sorry for the way that you have been hurt by people who call themselves Christians. That isn't what Jesus is about. That's not the message Jesus, Jesus would want to get across. Towards non-believers who have been hurt or discouraged by Christians, we should convey that that is not the message of God. Not because you would have been the specific person to hurt them, but because you're bearing the same title as the person who did hurt them. This is a way that we can undo, in a way, the hypocrisy that they have seen in the church, in the church or in Christians. The message of God is not judgment and hate towards people who aren't like us. The message of God is freedom from sin's slavery, salvation from sin's punishment, and a relationship with God through the Son of God, Jesus. Any message other than that is the human pollution of a perfect testimony. And that's what we have to be careful not to give. Because verse 23 tells us that that dishonors God. Don't let pride pollute your testimony, our testimony. So, pride deludes us towards God's grace and it can pollute our testimony towards the unbelievers. And the third point of tonight is that pride ignores the spirit. It comes from verse 29, 25 to 29. Pride ignores the spirit. See, these verses in 25 to 29, I'll just quickly read them. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically, yet obeys the law, will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and are circumcised, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. These verses talk a lot about circumcision and, and the fact that it has a conditional value. The Jews hearing this message prior to this would have been shrinking back a bit. They've been told that despite their amazing spiritual privileges, which they could normally take refuge in and say, yeah, all that, but, but I have these privileges. All those things are being, are being torn apart in front of them. Their mindset of them is being torn apart. They've been told that those aren't enough and that they're blaspheming God with hypocrisy and disobedience. But despite Paul's accusation, they had one last retreat into Judaism. In defense of Paul's attack, they had one last card to play, and that was circumcision. See, the Jews believed in that day, contrary to verse 25, which says circumcision has value only if you observe the law. The Jews believed that obeying the law would be great. That's a great idea, but they believed circumcision... Yeah, they believed... Contrary to that, they believe circumcision saved them. Now, I know what some of us might, have been, might be thinking now, probably similar to what I thought when I first read about this, and that was, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we all know circumcision is a big deal to the Jews. No, no, no. 
The Jews believed that the act of circumcision got them to heaven, that that alone got them to heaven. Old Covenant scriptures and parts of the Jewish Bible taught that no circumcised man shall see hell because Abraham stands at the gate of hell checking every man and not letting any, un- any circumcised men in. What a fun job for Abraham. <laughs> but you see, the Jews believed that that's what would happen. Yikes. Circumcision saves. Pride is the satisfaction from one's own achievement. And that's what the Jews had in their achievement of circumcision. And so their faith in an action and their achievement was pride at work in them. Pride is relying on oneself instead of the Spirit of God. Now, Paul is from a strong Jewish background, so he knew that as he was saying all of these things, in their mind they would be thinking, that, that's great and that is pretty condemning, but I'm circumcised, so that saves me. Well, Paul knew that that's what they're thinking, and so he addresses this. Verse 25 says that circumcision has no value if you don't keep the law. But if you keep the law, it has has great, great value. But otherwise, it's absolutely pointless. What a sucky thing to be told is absolutely pointless. To go through that and then be told, no use. Well, Paul shows that it has absolutely conditional value. And to show this, to show, just how un- un- to show just how conditional it is, he says that if someone isn't circumcised, but they obey the law, then they may as well be circumcised, even though they're not, and even though they don't have to be. That is showing just how conditional that act is. Circumcision, what he's saying, is a sacrament only. It is a physical sign of something spiritual an outward mark of something inward. It's like a wedding ring. A wedding ring signifies a commitment, an outward sign to the world of an inward promise to mark you as someone who lives a certain way. But if you're not living that way, then that ring means absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean that a commitment is there. It just signifies something that you're confessing to have but aren't actually upholding. Circumcision, like the wedding ring, is only useful if you live the consistent life. If you're adulterous and defile what that ring represents, what use is it? It's absolutely pointless. Paul says in the same way, circumcision doesn't save. It's a sign. Just like baptism doesn't save, infant baptism doesn't save, church attendance doesn't save you, church membership on a piece of paper doesn't save you. They are physical signs that there is an inward change, And we're told this in verse 29. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. See, what pride in us wants to do is ignore the spirit and rely on what we can achieve. This idea of inner circumcision of the heart rather than outward circumcision has always been the plan. It's been the idea of God's law since the beginning. It's not only now that Jesus has come, it's about our heart, but beforehand it was about circumcision and the law to get into heaven. No, that's not the idea. The fact is that it has been the plan since the very beginning. Galatians 15, 6, 6, 15 to 16 tells us this. That's Galatians 6, 15 to 16. It says, Neither circumcision or, no, or non-circumcision means anything. 
Well, that's pretty clear in just that, but he goes on further. He says, what counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. He wasn't just saying to, to the rest of the non-Jews, circumcision doesn't mean anything. He's saying even to the Israelites, that alone doesn't mean anything. It's who is a new creation. But, you know, that's in the New Testament, so maybe that doesn't really prove that it's from, it's been the plan since the beginning, circumcision of the heart, along with true circumcision. But Jeremiah, the prophet, um, gives a message from God to Israel, and he says this in Jeremiah 9, verse 25. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, all and all who live in the desert in distant places will be judged. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the house, whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. See, the focus has always been on physical circumcision as a sign of the inward circumcision of the heart. It's clear that circumcision of the heart of God's people has always been the idea of the plan. And that's not part of the law. That's the heart of the law. The heart of God's covenant with Abraham, the heart of all God did for and through the Israelites was not to pressure them and to, into obeying a whole bunch of difficult rules that he gives to them and then last because they can't do it. The heart was to reconcile man into a deep, intimate relationship with himself, God. So we see that turning the covenant into a whole bunch of lists of rules for us to obey in, or a ritual for us to obey and then be saved doesn't transgress part of the law. It transgresses and misses the whole point of the heart of the law. And by doing this, by living a life we, rede- we deem righteous, brings blasphemy to God. Let's look at how. Let's look at what it means for us. The truth is that our best attempts blaspheme God. Outwardness alone blasphemes God. Follow along in verse 28 and 29. And as you do, I'll be reading a rendering of those verses by a Dr. Barnhouse. If you want, get, get 28 and 29 up there. And it says, the rendering says this. For he is not a Christian who is one outward, nor is belonging to a church merely outward and physical. No, a person is Christian who is one inwardly, and belonging to the church is that of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's practice does not come from people, but from God. Hear this. If our security in salvation lies in anything but the cross of Jesus, we do not understand God's heart. If our security in having the ability to live a godly life, a God-pleasing life, if we believe that we have the ability to do that in anything but the Spirit, we do not understand God's heart. If we think that we are living a God-pleasing lifestyle simply because we are belonging to a church, or solely because we have been baptized as an infant or a teenager or an adult, if we think our lives are pleasing to God because we are of a higher moral standard than the rest of the world, or because we understand the Bible and its history, because we can interpret Greek words in there and know their meaning, 
because we tithe, if we wear a cross, say grace before we eat, sin less than your work colleagues or your friends or even your enemies, if any of that is what gives us security and in living a God-pleasing life, then we transgress the heart of God's law. And we transgress God's heart. And in doing this, we blaspheme him. All because we miss one vital part, the spirit. All because our pride causes us to rely on ourselves and ignore the spirit. The spirit is so important because it, it's not just another little piece of the ingredient, an ingredient that you throw into the concoction and then poof, you're a perfect Christian. The spirit is important because it takes the book, which we wrongfully see as a list of rules, it takes that and it writes it on our hearts, like what God says throughout his scriptures that he, he does with the spirit. He writes it on our hearts so that we love it and we desire it just like it's food and it's our greatest and most prized possession. The Spirit shows us the beauty of God's plan. As Christians who have decided to follow Jesus and his teachings, at times there are parts of his teachings that are really hard to take and really difficult to stomach. Let's read what Jesus says and we'll think, oh, maybe I'll skip over that part. It becomes hard, or maybe we feel guilty or bad or downtrodden because we can't live up to that. Or we don't want to. They're an outward pressure for us to obey as long as we view them through, through human eyes. The Spirit, as it does with the whole Bible, takes Jesus' commandments and his difficult teachings and it writes them on our hearts so that we cherish them and we want them and we desire our lives to sing that song. Verse 29 tells us that at that point, we don't thirst after people's praise, like so many of us may be in the habit of doing when we are being prideful, but we thirst after God's praise. Sincere obedience to God's moral law, which is his heart's requirement, comes after the Spirit circumcising our hearts and helping us to live under faith-driven action. I'll say that again. Sincere obedience to God's moral law comes after the Spirit circumcising our hearts and helping us live under faith-driven action. God does not promise the circumcision of our heart as a result of our pleasing actions towards Him. Our best blasphemes God. He circumcises our hearts and then, as a result of that, we can live a life pleasing to Him. Don't let your pride cause you to ignore the need for the Spirit. So let's take a look back at what we've covered. First, pride deludes us to God's grace. So don't let your pride deceive you about what God has done in his perfect grace, not because of what we've earned. Secondly, pride pollutes our testimony. Don't let your pride lead you to put yourself above God's will because hypocrisy will lead to blasphemy. And pride ignores the Spirit, lastly. Don't let your pride cause you to believe that you can gain salvation or even live a godly life without God's Spirit. He writes His law on our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we all acknowledge that you are all-powerful. 
And we know that you're perfect and that you alone paid the price for us to be reconciled to you. And we need to remember that our own goodness has no place in that. Our pride has no place in your plan for us. Please, Lord, I pray that you give us a a spirit of humility so that we can fully submit to you, rely on your sacrifice of Jesus for our salvation, and on your spirit to live a Christ-filled life. May we give you control and glory and find satisfaction not in ourselves or any of our own achievements, but what you have done and who you are. We pray all of these things, Lord, in the name of your perfect Son, Jesus. Amen.